0: And the reason you see another title up there is because I, when I put this together I realized this, this unpacks, or or unfolds a very large body of information that we need to talk about, but uh, we just simply cannot in one message. So, I'll kind of show you the framework. The framework is the amazing power of context, but this first message here is the first truth. So, if uh, if this crashes and burns today, then you probably will never hear the rest of them, but that's okay because this is the foundational key truth. Uh, if I speak again, then we'll follow this this format here. Um, so let's pray and get started. Join me in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to serve in this way, to speak on your behalf. And You know, Father, I've never done this before. This is not something that I'm skilled at. So... What I pray for today is something supernatural. We pray that where I fall short, and I will, that you would fill in with your Holy Spirit and that you would take your message today, regardless of what I say or don't say, or show or don't show, and take that into the hearts and minds of those who will hear and see today in the sanctuary, who will hear and see online today, and who will hear and see in the future from their recordings. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, How's this going to go here? Okay. Registering the clicker. Where are we pointing? Let's see if we can get the slides to move. There we go. Okay. So, it is better not to know so much than know so many things that ain't so. This quote is typically applied to Mark Twain, but in my research, I really found there's no evidence that Twain ever said this. Although it was applied to in his lifetime, and he agreed that it's the kind of thing that he would have said, and probably needs to be said. The point is well taken. The point is, you have to be very careful with what you take on board as truth, right? So we have to be very discerning in what we take on board, because once you do it's going to shape the way you view everything else in a way that's very hard to undo you know uh, before Melba and I moved back to Tallahassee we were living out in the Seattle area and out in that area in that time the Seattle Seahawks um, we'd follow I'd follow the football there the Seattle Seahawks and I had an offensive lineman who had a uh, developed a habit of drafting defensive linemen to play offensive line in the professional levels. And I remember listening to uh, you know, interviews with him on the sports radio there driving home in the evenings as to why, why you would do such a thing. And his explanation was basically that in the college game, the way that o- those offenses work, blocking is so different than what we have to do on the professional level, that they were struggling once these guys had those bad habits, once they had that way of doing well not bad not, that way of doing things bring them in here it was very difficult to untrain that before you could train this so they took a they did an experiment so we're just going to draft a few guys that have never done this but they have the size speed strength intelligence and foot speed to do this and we're just going to bring them in and we're going to start them from kindergarten you've never played this we're going to start you from here and just build it up and they had great success they went to a couple of super bowls they won one of them Doing this with people. So the point is, be careful what you take on board as truth because it's going to change you. It's going to change how you view everything else. So when we take that, we look at the Bible, we look at Scripture. How do we know that we're understanding the Bible as it was meant to be understood? And this is a valid question because I think you would agree that depending on how far away from the church you live, those in the sanctuary today, if you have a ten-mile drive home or less, I think you agree you're going to drive past maybe a dozen, possibly as many as two dozen different churches if you pay attention on the way home, and they're going to all be of different kinds of denominations. Most of them are going to be Protestant denominations that are basing their faith around the Bible, and yet they've landed in very different places in understanding. There's a common core that that uh, we all agree on, yet. These different groups are looking at the same book, they're reading the same scriptures, and they're landing in very different places, not just from us, but from each other as well. So, how can that be? Well, we're going to unpack that a little bit. So, I think we need to understand that before we try to dive into any specific doctrine and look at what we believe and why we believe it. And why do they believe what they believe? And where would the differences be and why would that happen? Well, I told you this is part of a much broader context, and it, and it is. And if we get a chance to carry on in future discussions, we'll go down um, this list of topics, right? So we move from this truth to the story, the meta context. It's all about context: textual context, historical context, linguistic context, and some practical exercise. Hope we get to that. I just wanted to show that to you. To acknowledge that I'm going to say some things today, we're going to cover some topics that are heavy, that are dense, and they require additional unpacking. And we just, uh, but today, for the sake of time, we're going to hit them and we're going to move on. But I understand that if it, that you may require some additional study in these areas, of course, and we we acknowledge that, and hopefully we'll get to it. So, if you know me, you may or may not know that the first 20 years of my professional life were spent in the army as a infantry officer and in that job I was in the field virtually all the time I began as a rifle platoon leader and spent time as a a specialty platoon leader a company executive officer then battalion operations officer executive officer commander Uh, all these jobs are in the field with soldiers and in that environment the armed forces have a concept um, that's critical to them called SA or situational awareness right so it's very critical to know your surroundings and know your uh, your situation and so you need to see you need to see around you so obviously you have your eyes I wear glasses it a little bit for many centuries humans have used uh, what we see here this is a a magnification or if you were in a tank or a Bradley crew you typically call this a day scope right you flip it to the to your day site and it simply magnifies what you can see as we said it's critical to see your surroundings you have to see your surroundings to navigate to know where you're at you have to see your surroundings to know friendly forces neutral forces and of course there's an adversary out there that you need to see and usually he's working very hard to ensure you don't see him so these visual aids are very important to us the challenge with this technology is that when the sun goes down it gives you a view something like this and. The problem for a force whose doctrine is to fight at night exclusively, if we can, this doesn't work for us. So the armed forces deployed new technology to help us with this. So in the late 70s, early 80s, we got a technology called night vision or infrared uh, technology. So when you put a set of these goggles on your head, which soldiers would called nods, you put a set of nods on your head, you see the world like this in shades of green. what this technology is doing is it's taking whatever light source is there and it's going to magnify it hundreds of thousands of times. If you weren't wearing these goggles, you would have seen the previous screen. This is just a black night. You put these things on. But there's some challenges here. If you've ever operated with these things on your head, uh, depth perception is not great. Uh, You can't tell from this picture, but uh, you can't really see depth too well. The other challenge is if you fire your weapon or somebody around you fires a weapon or even breaks out a flashlight, um, then these goggles are going to magnify that hundreds or thousands of times and you're going to be blind. So, uh, at least temporarily blinded. So, modern versions have the goggles only on one eye. The ones I wore had them on both eyes for that reason. Um, The other challenge with this (coughs) is that let me just say that the, is that if you're deep in a swamp or you're deep in a mountain valley no moon out no stars there's no human activity then what's zero times ten thousand still zero so in that you're just going to see a green screen so this is not adequate it's good it's not adequate so uh, we fielded an initial a new technology thermal sites so this is a you're looking through the sight of an M1A1 Abrams tank. As the crew sees it, uh, the field in front of them using their thermal sights. This technology measures the temperature difference between objects in, in view. Uh, warmer objects are going to appear brighter and cooler objects will appear cooler. Although most of these sights have a, uh, a setting. You can switch it if you want to reverse that. We used to call it white hot or black hot. Most crews, in my experience, set it on white hot. And that's what these guys have it on right here and you can use this technology day or night <coughs> right day only works in the day uh, your infrared only works at night the cool thing about thermals is you you can use it day or night and these guys are using it in the daytime here So you can't really tell and as a result here in the foreground you can see a lot of uh, heat pollution up close to their position uh, they're looking at a tank range and what that is is uh, typically the um, the range crews have redug those target pits recently and there's some exposed dirt laying around on the parapets and the sun is out so it's heating them up and it's kind of just creating some natural heat pollution. There is one man-made object in this in the screen. It's about it's on the left-hand side about halfway up. There's a square that's glowing bright. Can you see that? That's a piece of plywood. It's a range fan we call it. If you looked at it in a day side it would have a chevron painted on it pointing to the middle of our screen and it's telling the crew that uh, that's as far left as you can point your weapon right that's the edge of the range that's the edge of your sector there's another range fan on the right side out of our view that would be pointing to the middle and it's just telling them that you look in between these two so okay (coughs) that's interesting but what's the point? (laughs) what does that have to do uh, with anything well the point is this the lens you choose to look through alters your view it just does doesn't change what's out there but it alters what you are able to see the key is to choose the best lens for the situation you have multiple lenses but they don't all work the same same situation if you're looking for people hiding in a tree line that are well camouflaged your day sights not gonna reveal them If it's at night you can put your reds on you will likely not see them either but even if these guys are dressed up as trees, if they're wearing ghillie suits and they are actually a living, walking bush, when you flip to your thermal sites, they're going to glow, nice and bright, no matter how deep in there they are. You're going to see them very clearly. Okay. So neither side is better than the other. Nothing is right. Nothing's wrong. They're simply uh, they're simply different. And to get a complete picture, you have to use them all. To use them in the right sequence and the right way. The point is, the world around you doesn't change but only thing that changes is what you're able to see the lens doesn't change anything but the lens you choose will make some things more clear and it will make other things almost invisible okay now how does that apply to us well you and I use a lens a worldview when we look at the Bible we look at anything really and that 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 world view that set of goggles you put up to your head it's making some things clear and some things almost impossible to see and we're going to talk through today what I'm going to suggest to you is the correct set of lenses to use to reach the truth we talked about how do we know we're understanding the Bible as it was meant to be understood well I think you gotta get the right you gotta get the right vision sight you gotta get the right lens Going. So, we're going to start with the first and most foundational truth in Scripture. And that is the first lens we need to look through. So, what is that, though? Well, it would be the foundation of all of our doctrines and beliefs. And there are a lot of strong candidates. There are many doctrines we could drop in here, many truths we could drop into the base. Um, in the beginning God in the right God is the creator Very foundational very strong candidate down at the bottom here the law of God the Ten Commandments very popular in our community of faith strong contender to go in there um, the resurrection you know people have rightly noted that if you're able to debunk the resurrection uh, scripture itself admits if you can debunk the resurrection there is no Christianity our faith is in vain nothing mo- more to talk about so that's pretty core uh, the Bible is inspired word of God. The fact that this book is the foundation of our faith—that's that, pretty foundational. So all these are strong, strong candidates, very strong candidates. But wh- I'm going to suggest to you that it's a bit of a trick question because the actual foundational first truth is God is love. Okay, and where do we find this? Well. Toward the end of the Bible, when almost everything has been said, we come to John, to 1 John chapter 4. In verses 7 and 8, the Apostle John is going to tell us, first in the positive and then in the negative, uh, something about God that he's going to drill to a very fine point here, and its significance. We'll start in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love, no. well, that's the positive, okay? So if you love, if you're loving, this is of God, that's good. Now in verse 8, in the negative, he's going to tell us the same thing and drill in on a very fine point. So verse 8, whoever does not love, does not know God, because, here's our three words, God is love. This is significant because it's the first time in Scripture and you're almost at the end of Scripture if you begin in Genesis where the Bible will tell us what God is okay there are dozens of places where the God where, where the Bible will tell us that for example God is merciful dozens and maybe hundreds of times and yet there's nowhere where it will tell us that God is merciful. it will tell us that God is forgiving but nowhere will it tell us God is forgiveness right Here's the first time it will tell us that not only is God loving, it's not simply an act, not an adjective, not something He does, because that would not be a very special claim. All of us in here are loving at times. God is loving at times, but no, God is love this is This is significant, so we should s- sit up and take note of this because this is going to be very, very significant to where we're going to go in scripture but before we go what I need to do is hit the pause button and make sure that we have the correct picture of love in our minds because the Bible speaks of love in a language that the world of the 21st Western culture does not speak of okay these are two different concepts as you know while you're driving home driving past all these different denominational churches that you'll notice today if you were to turn your radio on, to any station from rap to country to anything in between, they will be singing about love, 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 love. I want your love. I want to give you my love. We want to make love. It's all about love. You turn on TV. It's going to be about love. You go to the movies. It's going to be uh, blaring about love. Love is love. It's all about love. This, the Western modern 21st century love, that term is really a mixture of infatuation and lust kind of all mixed together into a paste this is not the love that Scripture is talking of here so what is the love Scripture is talking about so make sure you, we have to make sure we have the right picture in our minds well we'll go to the love chapter first Corinthians chapter 13 is the love chapter it's going to give us a list of some of the features of love and characteristics it's tell us it tells us that love suffers long and is kind love does not envy Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. That's verses 4 and 5. It goes on with others. Now there's one of those characteristics that if you're like me, you've probably skipped over in your mind without really understanding it because you're not. if you're like me, I wasn't really sure how to interpret that and what to make of it. So everything else kind of follows for this thing right here does not seek its own so what is what is that all about well Jesus will come along and expand on this in many places but I choose John uh, chapter 15 verse 13 where he tells us that love greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friend someone laid down his life for his friend and love is other centered so what we see emerging is a concept of other centeredness around this love there's something about a focus on the other that's a part of this love when one lays down his life for his friends he's not benefiting from that the object of the love is benefiting love does not seek its own does not seek it the other translations will expand say its own benefits so there's a there's a focus on the other here we see that in other-centeredness to this kind of love. It's very different from our modern love, which is about me getting what I lust after. So, if God is love, and love is going to be our foundational first truth, and it's going to be the first lens with which we're going to look at Scripture and the world around us with, well, what's the, what's the purpose of that? How, what's the function? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that the way this works is the first truth becomes the lens through which we view everything else and as we saw earlier with lenses some things become more clear and some things become less clear depending on the lens you put on so when someone comes to you <coughs> and they say hey i've got this new truth been studying with some guys figured this out check out this new truth check it out this is amazing and we got verses with this too there's, there's Bible verses point right to this this new truth what we do is you pick up <coughs> our first lens, the God is love lens, and we look at this thing. You go, yeah, all right. Well, one of two things is going to happen here. Either this is going to be congruent. Yeah, I can see this. I can see this through the God is love lens. Yeah, it's possible. It doesn't mean it's the truth, but it's certainly possible, so continue to study that out and develop that. This might be something to take on board. On the other hand they come to you with this truth say, hey check it out we got verses with this too you put that put the lens on you go, yeah you know what I, I don't I don't I don't see it here can't this this these two things can't exist together right this can't breathe the oxygen in the space of the first truth so something's got to go or something's been misunderstood the first truth is not misunderstood and it's not going anywhere so this has to go away, or it has to, or further studies required because we might be misunderstanding this. All right. So yes, they all have verses with them. The difference is context. There's a lot of verses in this book. we're over 5,000 pages in this book in most publications of it. This is, uh, and a lot of things are being said in there. The only way to know that you're understanding it correctly is context. And our first piece of context is our first truth. Does this kind of make sense? Are we we, we track on this? All right. So any proposed doctrine or truth or understanding must be congruent with the first truth. If it's not, it's gotta be rejected or it's gotta be restudied because it's been misunderstood. Okay? Now, you know, we'll get objections to this. Um, you'll you'll the common objection is something along the lines of, you know, well we can't now wait a wait, wait wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute now we can't start judging God just because something doesn't seem to line up with your view of God doesn't mean it's not true. Yes, we encounter some things in Scripture that are not loving, that are not congruent with that, but we don't have any right as creatures to be judging God's Word, to be judging God. Uh, you just have to accept it. you got to bow as creatures. There's some truth in this. There's a lot of truth in this. We are merely creatures, and we do need to find the truth, and when we find that, we have to bow the knee to it, whether we like it or not. That is certainly true. But is it biblical that... You know you cannot judge, and God never asked you to judge. And just, uh, just obey, without thought. This is I'm going to suggest to you this is not scriptural. In fact, if you look at Isaiah chapter five in Isaiah in Isaiah chapter five, God is struggling with his people, right? Things aren't going the way he would like them to go with his people, and he's going to use an analogy or a parable here to describe the situation. He uses the parable of a vineyard he says look for my people I got a piece of land I cleared the land I built a wall to protect it I built a water tower to irrigate it I planted good grapes I cultivated it you know I drove the lot the animals and wildlife away and in verse 3 he's gonna bring this thing home in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 5 and now O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah so hit a pause button there when you read that you should think people of God my people people who follow me judge between me and my vineyard what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it when I look for it to yield grapes why did it yield wild grapes some translations say good grapes why did it yield you know bad grapes so what do we see here judge you my people judge judge between what me and my vineyard and what's the question you're going to render judgment on what more was there to do that I have not done? This is a sermon in itself. This may be a sermon series in itself. You know, you do have uh, judgment. You have what we're about to see in a minute, something that uh, philosophers, theologians call agency. And you must use it for the Bible. You say, well, that was the Old Testament. You know, things, everything changed at the cross. Malachi 3.6 For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So, you know, moving on from this, we'd come back to the God is love and consider the implications. If God is love, and we understand love correctly, then logically there are some implications that unfold that are very important. So let's start walking through those. We noted that love, as the Bible defines it, is other-centered and God is love, therefore God is other-centered. Well, if that's true, then love requires an object, does it not? To be other-centered, we have to have an other to focus on. Well, if that is true, then love cannot occur in a singularity. We're not going to pursue this point, but you can see that if, as some, uh, some communities of faith believe, if God is a singular strong man on the throne, dictating... That can't be true because love has to have an object. God is love. A singularity can't have love. It can't be love. Can't be God. Okay. So you kind of see the framework of the Trinity beginning to emerge from this. Although again, this that's another message for another day. We move on to second level implications. Love, because of its otherness, seeks relationship. Is this not logical? And do we not? all intuitively understand this from our life. From our lives, love yearns for love, which we would define as a love relationship. okay so what that would look like is love being given to the object and love being returned okay just like we see here. The key is this love must be voluntarily given and returned okay so it cannot be forced. therefore, third level implications. You know, why did God create is one of the questions that will come up occasionally. You know, life is hard, this is a difficult world, there's so much struggle. Why did he create to begin with? Why do we gotta go through all this stuff? Well, as we're gonna see, the answer begins to emerge that if God is love and God is other centered, and love requires another, God created to experience love relationship for the opportunity to experience love relationship with all of his creatures to expand that love and share it outside of the Godhead of the three. This is so good we have to have more of it. It's a burning relationship, but a burning desire. But we see this formula emerge, this constraint that even God cannot escape. Love requires freedom in this model. It has to be freely given. It cannot be coerced. And therefore, freedom entails risk. You know this intuitively, so, you know, when you're young, and you know, I'll tell this from a from a male perspective, because I was a young man, so when you're young, there's that girl you've got your eye on, you're attracted to her, and you finally approach her and say, hey, would you like to go spend some time with me? Let's go, let's go on a date, let's go do something It's you and me. Let's enter into a relationship. Well, she's gonna say one of two things, right? She's gonna say yes, or she's gonna say anything else. And guys, you don't understand, anything else means no. She's gonna say yes, or anything else. And when she says yes, that feeling is tremendous, right? That is a magical feeling. You can't, you can't recreate that feeling. But the reason it feels so great is because no was on the table. She could have and very likely was going to say no, but you got the yes. It's now the same scenario. You ask her to go out with you, and now your friend walks up to her and puts a gun to the back of her head. Now think very carefully before you answer this time. Would you like to go spend some time with me, yes or no? Well, you're going to get the yes again, right? So these are the same, right? Yes, yes. Landed in the same spot, but it's totally different. Here, the feeling is wonderful because love relationship is possible. You know, who knows, but it's possible to emerge here. In this space, it's no longer possible. It has evaporated because freedom has been removed from the equation and coercion has been introduced. And power has been introduced, and that evaporates any opportunity for love. So if God is love and his burning desires for love relationship, then you see that being omnipotent gives him no advantage in this game. Right? In fact, it can be counterproductive. These are the implications, and we gotta think through what what this means to us. Now you know i'll briefly cover some objections will come up at this point sometimes (laughs) maybe in your own mind maybe with other people's minds um if you're discussing this with someone well if god's omnipotent he can do anything right so why wouldn't he just create a situation where people are free but they always choose to love him right and he can do anything right uh yeah so c.s lewis addresses this it's gonna be kind of small on the screen i'm gonna read this he addresses this head-on and uh he dispenses this pretty quickly, and we will too. So if you're close enough, you can read, read this. If not, I will read it for you. God's omnipotence means power to do all that is intrinsically possible. You may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. This is no limit to his power. If you choose to say God can give a creature free will and at the same time withhold free will from it, you have not succeeded at saying anything about God. Meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix them with the two other words God can. It is no more possible for God and for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives. Not because his power meets an obstacle, but because nonsense remains nonsense even when we talk it about God. So, you help people walk through this objection is just uh, just nonsense, if you're having that. So, as we put these goggles on now that we've put together, God is love. When we look at Scripture, some things ought to become, start glowing brighter to us that maybe we didn't see before. And I would suggest that rather than entering into debate with others who see scripture differently that's not usually a very productive um, endeavor we should understand that they're looking at scripture with different goggles on okay so different things are growing glowing brighter to them than to us and there are things they're really not seeing alright so I'm going to suggest to you when we get through the end of this in entire discussion that we're wearing the set of the correct goggles, the, which will have multiple lenses in it that will reveal everything. But if you're only wearing, if you're only wearing one of them, you know some things are going to disappear. So, before you can get to any discussion of a specific doctrine, you have to address this vision situation. Using our God is love, uh, first truth goggles. We're going to start looking at some of the things Scripture tells us. John seven verse three, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We select this verse because much of the world believes that the entire purpose of the Bible is to sh- to show you how to be saved, how to get to heaven. This world's a bad place, it's going to end, and we're going to go to one of two places. One's pretty good, one's not very good at all, and the whole objective is to get saved and get there. And while that is true, there is truth in that, Jesus defines it very differently. This is eternal life. Here's the definition. you want to know what the definition is to know you he's talking to his to the Father, God the Father here. knowing God is eternal life now this know this this word in the original Greek is much much more intense than yeah, yeah, I know that guy. Again, that would be a different word in the greek this this is a very intimate relationship that scripture is suggesting here like you know the way you know your spouse. The way this is a lifelong, deep relationship that we're talking about here. John 17:25. Oh, righteous Father, even the world does not know you. I know you, and these know that you have sent me. What do you see here? Know you, know you. This is relationship language. This is not commandment language. This is not obedience language. This is relationship. John seventeen twenty six, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them known known this is relationship language not obedience well that's just the old uh, the New Testament the God of the Old Testament is much harsher he's not into love he's into obedience you know the Old Testament salvation by works but the New Testament salvation by grace no God's the same. In Jeremiah chapter 9, we'll be told this in verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. No, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So what do we see here? Old Testament as well. <coughs> you want to boast in something? Boast in the fact that you know and understand me. So this is, this is God. This is the heart of God. Old Testament, New Testament, eternally. And the results of not knowing God are catastrophic. The Bible is equally clear on this. Okay? not about following a set of rules. It's not about doing certain things that you've been told to do in the religious structure these will not save you. Christ is going to tell you this very clearly here describing the final day when this world ends when this experiment comes to an end and all the data is on the table and the jury's back and it's time for this situation to end, we come to a fork in the road we all know this and we go off to a place where one, only one or two things are going to happen you're going to go off to a place where you're going to be with God. Or another place we're going to be. Now, what exactly is going on at that place and how that looks is a discussion for a different time. But this is clear in Scripture. And here's how Jesus describes that day. We're at a cup Every time he describes it, he describes it in a similar way. We'll take a look at this now in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. So note here, these are people that believed in God. And they uh, apparently worked for the church or worked for some church. They did things. They followed rules. They followed checklists. He says, I never knew you. Unless he doesn't tell them you didn't, you didn't have the right doctrine, you didn't follow the rules, you didn't keep the Sabbath, you, know, you ate bacon. No. I never knew you now all those things might have flown from that but he's drilling in on the core issue is it I didn't know you and you didn't know me he doesn't deny they did those things he says yeah but I don't, I don't know you know whoever you were doing that with maybe you're doing that for yourself but it wasn't for me I don't know what was going on there I didn't know you in Matthew 25 <coughs> he's going to describe the exact same situation he's going to use a parable this time and he's going to talk about uh, as his parable a wedding feast, and so in those days, um, so there's a wedding feast. There's ten young ladies, the Bible calls virgins. They are going to the wedding feast. You can't go into the feast until the groom arrives. And in the parable, the groom has been delayed. Um, so the ladies all bring lamps with them, oil lamps, which you would use in those days. And as the groom is delayed, they're they're having to wait. So they wait, and wait. Apparently, the sun goes down. And so they have to fire up their lamps because you don't want to be out in the wilderness in that time without uh, light. So they got some light going. Well, late at night, around midnight, the cry comes out that the groom is coming. It's time he's coming. They've all fallen asleep, all ten of them. So note that all of them believe the groom exists, and they're all waiting for the groom. They've all got that right. And now they wake up. So they wake up and they fire up their lamps. Well. Five of them have brought extra oil, and five of them have not. So the so the five with the extra oil need it, and the five five that don't have it, they ask those that do have, it, "Hey, give us some of your oil." And they tell me, "Yeah, we yeah we can't do that because if we give you oil, then we won't have enough for ourselves. So you need to go you know go figure out, go get some oil for yourself. Can't help you." And that's where we pick up the story here, in verse 10. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the groom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Yet later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. I do not know you. So, again, describing this moment, Jesus uses relationship language, and tragically, for It said, I don't know you. You know, they believed in the groom. They were waiting for the groom. They were even doing stuff with other people who were waiting for the groom. But they didn't know the groom. And the groom didn't know them, ultimately. Scripture consistently describes judgment in terms of relationship. Consistently. And Jesus never uses any other frame of reference for that that I'm aware of. Relationship with God, saved. No relationship with him, not good. Nothing else will do. Now, why would that be? God's revealing his true, the true nature of his character in Scripture in a desperate hope that you will be drawn to him. Because we just saw, relationship saves, a lack of relationship leads you to the wrong place. You, you're lost. And we don't have time to get into the... Um, the background of this but each and every one of you of us is completely unique in all eternity God's only shot at a relationship with you is you once you're gone there's no other you there's no there's th- that that's a hole in his heart that can never be filled there's never been anyone like you exactly and there will never be anyone like you in the future exactly like you he's got one shot at you that's why he will say things like this he needs to draw you into relationship with him so he can experience that love relationship and then ultimately you will be saved yes say things like John 32 and I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself this is the language of courtship this is wooing this is attractiveness this is not driving people with sticks versus the carrot this is wooing you into the relationship that you need, that I need, that he needs. Cause in any courtship, you have to reveal your character, right? That's the purpose of the courtship, so that we can see the beauty of your character and desire to enter relationship with you. And that's exactly what God is doing. So we come back to the love chapter, First Corinthians chapter thirteen. We looked at a couple of verses before. We'll get a much longer passage now, and. If God is love, if we're understanding this correctly, we should be able to do something here that might uh, reveal something to us that maybe we haven't seen before when we look at it through our new goggles here. Starting in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in righteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So we hear this read at weddings a lot of time, just like, oh, this is love. Love is wonderful. But if God is love, and in this in the world of Scripture, God is love, well then very legitimately, this is not describing love between two human beings in any way shape or form this is a revelation this is god stating his character he's telling you who he is and what he's about desperately hoping you'll be attracted to him because if that is true then everywhere we see love spoken or implied here we can legitimately insert god and if we did we would see something like this the passage again through our, God, our new lens. God is patient. God is kind and is not jealous. God does not brag and is not arrogant. God does not act unbecomingly. God does not seek his own benefit, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. God does not rejoice in righteousness, but rejoices with the truth. God bears all things. God believes all things. God hopes all things. God endures all things. God never fails. This is the being that is calling you into relationship with him. And he's hoping that's enough. The fact is, God has chosen you, but because the agency you have, you must choose Him back. It's the only way love relationship works. He's asked, you got to say yes. And anything but yes is a no, even for Him. And love relationship with God is not, it's not only what saves us, it fulfills and changes us. Not only in the future, but right now. So, I don't want you to walk away thinking that I put down commandments, rules, standards. I did not. I did not. What I'm telling you is that those things cannot come from the outside. They have to come from the inside. Okay? You will be changed, as Paul will tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, or 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you go into this relationship with Jesus and you have this relationship and it grows in you, then you will suddenly and over time simply not be congruent anymore with certain things, okay? You will keep the Sabbath, not because you were told to keep the Sabbath by a religious structure that gave you a list of rules, but because that's your relationship time with God that was created for you, and it's the only way you can... feel okay on Sabbath whether anybody's watching you or not it's the same with all of the other rules just like any other relationship you follow a set of rules if you thought about it with your spouse but not because you've got a checklist of rules to follow every day but because you love her because you want to do these things for her or for him it's become just simply who you are this is what Paul is describing here this is the journey. So let's start summarize this up, start bringing this thing in for our landing, see if we can do that. God is other-centered. What are the implications of that? Well, God knows that He is the source of life. We didn't have a chance to substantiate that today, but I will assert that God is the only source of life. He is the creator of everything. Without Him, there is no life. To turn away from Him is to be a, a lamp that I'm... Willingly unplugs itself from the the wall socket. Okay, if you do that, the light's going to go out. You know, and I'll point out. Note that in the in, the, if you know the story of the Garden of Eden and the fall of mankind, you know God told Adam and Eve, "You can eat from all the trees, but the one in the middle here, <coughs> you can't eat of that one, because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die." Note very carefully, He did not say, "On the day you eat of it, I will kill you." That would be a very different thing. God knows that these are the consequences. Okay, Romans chapter 6 will tell us that the wages of sin is death. Well, of course it is. Because you've unplugged yourself from the source of life, the only source of life. So no one's killing you except yourself. You simply will die. It's like, it's like talking to somebody who has their back to a cliff, a thousand foot cliff to rocks. You're saying, don't, don't back away from me. Don't back up. Come come to me. Because if you back up, if you take another step back, you will die. He's not saying he will not push you off the cliff. You that it leads to death. Logically it can't go anywhere else. This is what he knows. This is the desperation to call you into relationship with him because coming to him moves you away from that. That outcome. So God's other-centered nature drives him, in his desire, into love relationship with each and every one of us. But the constraints of that love requires freedom, and freedom means the risk that you won't, uh, that you will turn away from him. That's real, and even an omniscient, uh, an omnipotent God cannot escape that constraint. God is revealing his character to you in a desperate attempt to attract you into entering love relationship with him. But choosing to turn away is to turn away from the only source of life. And that truth is the greatest truth that you and I have ever heard, I guarantee you. And that's why uh, probably the most prominent living Christian philosopher of our time, Alvin Plantinga, made this observation about what we just discussed He says, this overwhelming display of love and mercy, God's character revealed in the Bible, is not merely the greatest story ever told. It is the greatest story that could be told. The challenge is, go home and try to figure out something better than this. You cannot. You absolutely cannot. So this is the view that I recommend is your first lens, the way we should view the world. If we get to come back, we'll carry on into the story. And I'll say this. So, before we enter into dialogue and certainly never debate with anyone about doctrines, we first have to identify and understand the lens they're viewing doctrine with, okay? Because that set of goggles is going to make certain things so clear they can't ignore them. But it's going to make other things disappear, okay? When you're looking at it through the God is love goggles you're gonna see those things very differently. And there are other lenses to look through. We'll discuss those next time. First, you have to get them, rather than arguing about what they're seeing versus what you're seeing, you have to bring them along and say, hey, why don't you have a look at that through my goggles? Why don't you check, check this out through the God is love goggles? If you can get that done, then we can have a meaningful conversation. But prior to that, we're just arguing over stuff. And that's never where we want to be, and that's never going to be persuasive to thinking uh, adults. Okay, Thank you.